Welcome to episode 97 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes to 20 minutes, <laughs> and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. And news broke this week that Dish is launching their first market in Las Vegas. And boy, they're, they're getting down to the wire here because they have to have that coverage requirement done by June and it's gonna involve more than Vegas. But what's interesting about this announcement is that they announced an over $1 billion value deal with Samsung. This is gonna involve uh, devices as well as Samsung's 5G VRAN ORAN compliant solution. And we've talked about Samsung and its capabilities with VRAN and ORAN. This one is just another proof point that really highlights Samsung's leadership in this regard. And I like the fact that DISH is bundling this deal to include not only infrastructure, but handsets. So it's sort of a one-stop shop. So I think it's very, very compelling. Would love to get your views and input on it as well. Yeah, I, uh, I obviously have a lot of thoughts about DISH's um, you know, their rollout, I think 20% is going to, you know, they're going to have to cover 60 million people. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the cities that they've chosen to cover first, um, it's going to be a challenge for them. Um, I'm kind of looking at the map. And as far as big cities go, I think their best chances are probably like Dallas, Houston, and Orlando. Because, yeah. um, you know, Vegas is also, also a big city, but like Reno, Boise, Spokane, uh, Fond du Lac, um, you know, those aren't very big cities. So th no. they've got to hit the bigger metros if they want to get this 20% um, by June. I'm not sure they'll hit it. I actually don't think they will because um, I think they would have had to have started this launch sooner in the year. Um, right. But I don't think they'll get penalized either um, because I think they agreed to these terms before the pandemic started. I agree. That's interesting that they could fall back on that. Not, not as a, an excuse, but, you know, we've seen other operators use it as an excuse like Rakuten, right? But the reality is COVID did slow things down. And so, you know, I think if they can demonstrate some solid progress in Vegas, they could get a few other, to your point, bigger metros lit up, then maybe they can get a stay in, in June. But yeah, it's looking, it's looking pretty challenging for them. But hey, you know, we had that, that great podcast with, with Mark Ran and, uh, he provided some insight to our viewers and listeners, and it's it's going to be good to have another carrier in the mix. It's just going to drive further innovation from a service delivery perspective, in my humble opinion. But let's move to your first topic this week, and T-Mobile recently announced earnings, but there was also a big uncarrier event that occurred today. Yeah, so they covered, they had earnings last week. Uh, since we didn't have a, a regular episode last week, we didn't cover that, mm -hmm. uh, but I want to cover it because... Um, they were actually able to say, um, you know, they, they, first of all, you know, had great earnings. Um, I think they said that they were at, um, they were at 50 cents, 57 cents per share EPS, which is actually down 23% from the same period last year, but mm -hmm. well ahead of the consensus estimates of 33 cents. So they beat on expectations. Um, and they also had um, 1.3 million uh, net customer ads, um, which is the best quarterly gain in eight years. Hmm. Um, so they're clearly doing well. Obviously, um, you know, they weren't as profitable as they've been in the past, but they beat everyone's expectations and they added a ton of customers. 
Um, and they said that looking into the 22 financial year, um, it sees net customer additions between 5.3 and 5.8 million, which is up from the prior year forecast of five to 5.5. So pretty yeah. much everything is looking upward, which is really where the share price matters. And, um, you know, if you look at the business fundamentals of what T-Mobile has done with the network and acquiring Sprint, um, they're, they're definitely, you know, accomplishing things at a rate that um, most people are expecting they will and even beating their expectations in many cases. Yeah. I believe the TIOT announcement, that'll be accretive, not right away, but I think we'll start seeing some positive effects from that in subsequent quarters, which should bolster ARPU and, and margins and we still haven't seen other than fixed wireless access services, which we're going to, we're going to talk about in a moment here from T-Mobile, really anything discreet other than the TIOT announcement from T-Mobile for business. So, right. um, and I've spoken about this in the past. I believe there's a lot of headroom for them to expand an enterprise where they've traditionally been just, you know, very solely focused on consumer. So I think the upside for them is, is building out a fuller portfolio of services and, product solutions, connectivity solutions that are geared for, you know, that small to mid to even large enterprise market. Yeah. And so the second part of that is they had the event today, right. um, literally today. So we'll be publishing this tomorrow, you know, later in the week, but um, today's Wednesday. And um, they basically had this event um, as an uncarrier event and they made four announcements um, but the big thing is that they're bringing home broadband to their entire customer footprint. Um, mm -hmm. You still have to punch in your, your address to see if you qualify on their website um, because they might not think that you have the coverage that is necessary. But all of this is being really enabled by their mid-band network. Yeah. Um, and I think when you look at what they're doing here, one, they're locking people in at $50 a month, which is a very competitive price for internet, better mm -hmm. than what most people are paying for much slower service. Two, they're letting people test drive their network for 15 days for free. And if yep. they don't like yep. it, they can send back their equipment. And, and also, they're also doing some really interesting stuff with bundling because if you're an existing customer, specifically of their top tier plan, um, they're actually gonna give you that, that home broadband for 30 bucks a month, which is a huge savings. And it is probably cheaper than what you're paying per line in most, in most cases on T-Mobile. Yeah. Um, so I think they're really trying to incentivize people to make T-Mobile your one-stop shop for, for connectivity, whether it's at home or uh, wirelessly, you know, roaming. So I think they're doing some really interesting things. There's obviously some business um, applications that they're also enabling with this. They're going to allow business users to basically take advantage of the same deal. Yeah. Um, they are giving business users, a, business users a free tablet line as well, so they can manage their business with, as well as have connectivity. And they're partnered with Cradle Point to enable some new um, gateways that will essentially have uh, private 5G networking and, and other security features that these consumer routers might not have. So um, mm -hmm. I think they're, they're doing the smart thing and creating the first offering as the lowest point of friction. Um, and if a business doesn't think that, you know, that offering is good enough for them, they can move up to the Cradle Point offering, which... I know you have a good relationship with them. You probably know that they have some really good offerings in that space. And mm -hmm. I think um, T-Mobile really wants to take advantage of their bigger network footprint, which they did talk about. Um, and the fact that their average speeds are higher. Um, and in general, I think, you know, I'm seeing their network evolving and I'm seeing 
now that speeds and and uh, you know the speeds and coverage are great, now latencies are starting to come down. I'm starting to see you know as low as 12 and 13 milliseconds while also having five to 600 megabits down and over 100 up. And when yeah. you have all three of those things t- together, it's you know it's basically the the it's like that catalyst for 5G success. Yeah, it's a killer combination. I like the cradle point relationship. Cradle point is obviously a part of Ericsson now. Ericsson is using cradle point to push itself further into the enterprise. So I like that move. Cradle point has a very mature product line. They've been doing private LTE solutions and L5G solutions for quite some time. And so I think that's super smart. The, the aspect that I liked about the consumer part of the announcement today was to try it before you buy it, right? So you mentioned, you know, for 15 days, you can get the product shipped to you. You can set it alongside your current setup in your home. Do the Pepsi challenge. I'm going to date myself there. I remember when Pepsi, you know, sent the little kits out with a can of Pepsi and a can of Coke and people did the comparison. T-Mobile is kind of taking that, that approach here. I think it's super clever. I think it has the potential to really accelerate the subscriber uh, base that they've uh, done a great job of building up until now. So yeah, lo- lots of great uh, information today. You and I were both on that call with other analysts and journalists, and there were some live tweets that you and I both uh, put out there. So I, got to ask, I also yeah, got to ask a question. <laughs> yeah, and you were able to ask a question. So for our viewers and listeners, you know, get get out there on Twitter, @AdamShulSag at Willtown Tech, and you'll see some of that uh, that input. But let's move to my second topic this week. I want to talk about U.S. Cellular. So they've announced that they're launching a 5G millimeter wave service in 10 rural parts of the country, 10 rural cities. And so the question I have, is it a smart move? I think it absolutely is to focus on a fixed wireless access solution. I've talked about how FWA is absolutely going to be a part of solving the digital divide. And this allows U.S. Cellular, which traditionally... They're obviously much smaller than, uh, you know, than T-Mobile and Verizon and AT&T, but they serve a rural footprint. And, but it was interesting to read through the announcement that they're also going to focus on larger urban areas as well. But I think they're smart to start with rural because that's where I really believe fixed wireless access can, can make a difference. But wondering if you have any uh, additional insight to add. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the important thing here is that, you know, they are um, trying to take advantage of the fact that where they play tends to be more rural. And also a lot of the places that they tend to be playing are flatter. Um, So as long as they have, you know, the masts in place, um, they can potentially get, I think, what is up to six or seven miles of coverage um, with FWA. And, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of the places that they, you know, that they're launching in. And, you know, I think when you look at what kind of internet services are available in a lot of these places, um, it's kind of embarrassing. Um, And I I think anybody having good internet service, especially when they're talking about, what is it, 300 megabit service? Yeah. um, You know, that's, that's life changing for somebody who's been dealing with 10 to 30 at best. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think long-term, if we really improve internet connectivity in this country, um, I think there's a lot more potential to potentially alleviate 
some of the um, housing problems we have in this country with too many people focusing to live in too few areas. Yeah. Um, and that, and when, once you let people spread out and give them internet connectivity, um, I think you, you change the way, um, you know, people who live in rural areas can compete with people who live in cities. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, it gets back to that whole notion of the gig economy. There are so many people that are reevaluating what they're doing, exiting the pandemic, finding better work-life balance. And part of that has been able to work from anywhere. And having more ubiquitous broadband is gonna help facilitate that. It's gonna drive positive GDP for the economy. It's a win-win. You know, you and I have talked about the, the race to 5G and why, you know, China was trying to get there first before the US. I mean, there, there's a real economic advantage there. And, you know, connectivity clearly, when you provide ubiquitous connectivity, it can up-level lots of things like inclusion and economic prosperity. And that's why I'm writing that book, The Human Network, and continue to work on it. And hopefully now that we're putting the pandemic in the rearview mirror, I'll be able to get out there and take some of those international trips. And on future podcasts, I'll talk more about the book and provide updates. But let's move to your se uh, second topic this week. You want to talk about a Google acquisition and how that could complement its uh, 5G Edge and XR play. Yeah, so this company is uh, an edge computing company called Mobile Edge X. Um, it's actually uh, a spin out of Deutsche Telekom. Uh, oh. And they got acquired by Google, uh, specifically Google Cloud. Um, and when you consider that Google Cloud is, you know, in many cases in a tertiary position to AWS and Azure, um, you know, I think they, they recognize that they, they're going to have to have a competitive cloud offering that is edge aware. Um, right. We know AWS has lots of that already in play, as does Microsoft. Right. Um, but we haven't heard as much on, from the edge uh, from Google. But, I, you know, I think that they obviously have a play. But having Mobile Edge X, I think, helps them because Mobile Edge X has so much experience um, working with carriers. Um, you know, they, they were funded by VMware, Samsung, huh. uh, and SK Telecom. So they already had some venture capital um, put into them from carriers. And, um, you know, the CEO, while he isn't transitioning with the company into Google Cloud, um, the company itself said that, you know, they have, um, they have the ability to ensure that now 25 mobile operators, um, which they have already worked with on their edge cloudlets, can interface with other edges around the globe. So they're creating this, um, this platform for Google to use to, to immediately make themselves effective with, with 5G operators. And I became familiar with Mobile Edge X during AWE when they presented on XR and talked about how they were enabling, you know, automotive XR solutions in a 5G um, network um, and allowing for, you know, low latency, high performance applications, you know, on the network in on the move. So um, I definitely think there's some really interesting things that they're doing. And I think Google acquiring them definitely helps them, uh, specifically Google Cloud helps them with their, their edge play, both in edge compute as well as XR, which I think is, you know, one of the probably the most um, compute intensive and low latency uh, necessary applications for the 5G network 
uh, and mobile edge compute. Without a doubt, uh, those are great insights. And I totally agree with you. This allows Google to catch up to Azure and AWS. As you mentioned, Azure and AWS have been making tremendous investments in mobile edge compute. And you know, no surprise, we've talked about Verizon and their partnership with, with AWS in that regard. So this, this is, seems like it's a pretty quick way for Google to uh, step up their game there. And I wasn't as familiar with Mobile Edge X as, as you were. I had no idea that they had those, those proof of concept, design wins, whatnot with, with 25 plus operators. So um, that, that provides a lot of credibility as, uh, as, they, as they try to carve their niche into the telco cloud space. But let's move to my third and final topic this week. And I wanna talk about AST Space Mobile and they're testing satellite-based services on AT&T Spectrum. And honestly, when I thought of AST, I thought of a computer brand back from the 80s. Again, I'm going to date myself, but <laughs> I did a, did a little bit of research. Uh, they're a five-year-old company that's actually based in Midland, Texas. So that's basically in the middle of nowhere in West Texas. But um, what, what they're trying to attempt to do is the company is claiming that they are building the first and only space-based cellular broadband network that is designed to be accessible directly by standard mobile phones, right? And so this is you know, from my perspective, pretty game changing. And so the nature of the announcement with AT&T is that uh, AST Space Mobile is gonna use AT&T's 846.5 to 849 megahertz license in Midland. It's 845 to 846.5 megahertz license in Honolulu. And it's 788 to 798 megahertz license in Pine Springs, Texas. And um, the last one is, is significant because it is connected to FirstNet, which obviously AT&T has built for first responders. So this is a pretty interesting way to go about providing uh, you know, cellular-based service regardless of where you are. I'm just wondering, what are your insights? I think, um, you know, I haven't done as much research on uh, AST Space Mobile and, and how they're using the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's um, you know, interesting because satellite is only gonna become more relevant in the 5G space with release 17. Um, and I think it's, its applications will become um, more relevant in 18 um, and probably mature to a point where satellite becomes a component carrier uh, among all others, um, and maybe satellite becomes, you know, the base level carrier for voice and text, and then all other data travels over, um, you know, terrestrial networks. Mm -hmm. um, that way you always have voice and text no matter where you go. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this pans out um, as a partnership. But to your point, um, you know, the fact that FirstNet is a um, a, a big part of this. Um, I think there are some opportunities to enable connectivity um, for first responders in places where there isn't any. Um, and hopefully yeah. that's going to be the primary use case looking forward. You know, that's an interesting point that you make because I did spend time with AT&T. I think I've spoken about this on a prior podcast in New Orleans. And I went to one of the areas where they had a lot of the first net gear stage. And typically in a highly remote area that isn't served by you know, cellular service, 
they have to take um, basically a portable cell on wheels or a light or colt and it's satellite connected as well right and that's i mean to to deploy that and set it up you know it takes time and so to to be able to sort of augment FirstNet with something like this i absolutely agree with you it, it, it sounds very compelling on the surface and um, you know, this is the first that I learned about, you know, what AST Space Mobile was, was doing. They've been around for five years, shame on me. But, uh, but I definitely, I'm going to be keeping my eyes because satellite in general is something that's very fascinating to me and Leo and how that's all going to sort of fit together to bridge the digital divide. So, but let's move to your third and final topic this week. And you've got an update on C-band FAA drama. <laughs> yeah, so yesterday, May 3rd, um, the FAA said they'll meet today um, with telecom and industry officials to push a retrofit and ultimately replace some airplane radio altimeters that could face interference from C-band 5G wireless service. Yeah. Um, this is a story from Reuters. Um, and what's interesting is not too long ago, like less than a week ago, um, there was a uh, statement from Pete Buttigieg, the um, the secretary of the Department of Transportation, who's in charge of the FAA, saying that the issue won't be completely resolved by summer, um, which I believe had been a previous promise that had been made when this started uh, late last year and blew up early this year. And no surprise, it's not resolved and won't be probably till the end of the year, if not longer. Um, but what's interesting is that the FAA wants to FAA wants to use this meeting that's happening today uh, to create, to establish an achievable timeframe for retrofit and replacement of radar altimeters in the US fleet. Um, and they want to um, ask aviation representatives to offer options and commit to actions necessary to meet those objectives. So I, I have a feeling that there's still um, money that's going to have to change hands to make this happen. Sure. I think that ultimately the, the airlines want to be, um, they want their costs uh, covered. Uh, and I think that's really at the crux of all this. Um, but the reality is we know that at least 90% of all commercial flights are safe. Um, so it's less than 10% of planes might have a problem. And they right. don't actually know what the actual percentage is. But I do believe that once they do figure that out, they should solve, they should replace those altimeters because they're probably decades old yeah. Um, yeah. and they probably needed replacing anyways. So right. this is a, this is definitely a very much airline problem. Um, and I think the airlines have successfully managed to kick the can down the road long enough mm -hmm. um, because this is not the first time that C-band has been considered an issue for airplanes. Um, but it is the first time that there's 90 billion plus on the table. Um, and I think that they want their piece of that. Um, and whatever that piece is, I think they're going to get it, honestly, yeah. because I think the FAA um, just wants us to go away at this point. And I think that's kind of what um, the air, the airliners have always wanted. It's just, you know, they tried to play scare tactics early on. Um, and it became very clear that this wasn't a real concern in most cases. And yes, while airline safety in the U.S. is paramount and probably the safest in the world, yeah. um, you know, using that um, approach to airline safety to, um, you know, kick around a political football uh, 
is is also you know not necessarily very um genuine or honest no no it's not and it just again we've spoken about this on numerous podcasts but it's just you know two federal government agencies not talking to one another i mean at the end of the day the fcc has raised billions of dollars on c-band peel off a couple hundred you know and cover cover the altimeter you know replacement and don't don't bother the general public don't get the operators involved you know just deal with it on your own but easier said than done but hey buddy it was another great podcast this week why don't you take us home absolutely we hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting if anyone out there would like to provide insights for a future 5g topic for the next podcast please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.